Our sermon today is taken from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4 and 22 through 27. This is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard loud a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives us it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. There will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much that we have this privilege to come before you to hear, Lord God, what you have in store for us, to not only um, be told about the gospel, but also the end of all things, Lord God, the new heavens and the new earth, um, the purpose for which we were created, which is a new city with you, where there will no longer be a distinction between church and city, but rather everything will be one precisely because we have immediate access to you, and you are our God, and we will be your people, and there will be no more death. No more suffering, no more corruption, no more sin, because we will be made new, completely and whole. So Father, help us now as we understand this text. Help us see, Lord God, that as we're grounded in heaven, um, this heavenly vision of the new city will be what fuels us for work today. And so as we do these things, Father, we pray that your spirit will be present for me to be clear, for this text to be illumined. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, um, Welcome again. We're in the middle of our series on the priesthood of all believers. We just have this sermon today, and then um, next week will be the last sermon in the series where we'll be discussing Jesus as our true and only high priest. But this week, we're continuing on our series on the priesthood of all believers, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've seen that the priesthood of all believers means that every Christian has an equal status before God. Everybody's been called a saint Everybody's been made new. Everybody has access to God as their father now because Jesus has washed them, had made them completely clean. And secondly, that every Christian, therefore, has the same obligations, the same responsibilities. Every Christian is called to represent God. Every Christian is called to have access to God and to represent God to this world. And so we saw that in various passages, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4. And then um, last week we saw it as well in... um, Uh, And baptism, where baptism was the initiation rite, where we are called to be one body, a new humanity. And so as we've discussed um, all the implications of the priesthood of all believers, it's become clear to a lot of us that every single one of us, therefore, is a body, and each one of us makes, makes, makes a member of that body. So all of us are essential. All of us has a part to play. And a natural question that arises, therefore, as we've been communicating in community groups and even in discussions is, 
Does this mean that everybody is called to work in the church? Um, does this mean that everybody has to work in the church as an institution? And we addressed that a little bit last week, and we said no. Yes, there is an ordained ministry, but the church is a body, but it's also a body in terms of its friendship. Everybody is a role to play in terms of the relationships that we have with one another. But it's more than that. You see, friends, in the Bible, um, there is no such thing uh, as, as a division between what is sacred and what is secular. We like to think that there is such a division. We like to think that what we do on Sunday is completely separate from what we do from Monday to Saturday. That our secular jobs is one thing and then our sacred career in our church is another thing and we want to keep those two things separate. Religion is for private lives, for our private piety, private devotion. And that what we do in our work doesn't really matter. And what's fueled actually, behind, what's fueling that kind of view, behind that kind of view, is an understanding of heaven that isn't embodied. What's the common perception of heaven that we have here today? You know, any popular movie, any kind of popular book that we read about heaven or heaven shows up, what do we see? We see us as angels, maybe. We have wings. We're playing the harp. You know, um, we're, we're, we're playing violin and, and singing songs to one another in white robes. And then we float, and then suddenly we all talk in a high-pitched voice. Hello, my good friends. Welcome to heaven. Uh, here, you will no longer have work. Here, you can have, you know, when I was growing up, I thought that heaven was just a place where I could play video games all day, every day. There will be no more work. There will just be pure rest, pure recreation. You can do whatever you want. It had nothing to do with God. It's just pure bliss that had nothing to do with God, no work, all recreation, right? That's our view of heaven. And so we have this understanding where after we die, our souls puff out, and then we're kind of there floating, and then that's it. So if that's your view of heaven, the, natu the, the natural question is, what then does earth have to do with that? What does heaven, that heavenly vision that we all think about in our heads, have to do with our mundane tasks of getting up in the morning, drowsy-eyed, getting into our cars, preparing our lunches or whatever? What, is that, what does all of our mundane activities have to do with heaven? And furthermore, if the priesthood of all believers, which means that we have all equal responsibilities, means that not everybody is called to ordain ministry, but we still have the same responsibilities, doesn't that mean that if we're a Christian, the way we view our work ought to be different? The way we view our work means that somehow, if we're a Christian, we can't work the same way anymore. We're, we're completely new people. We're supposed to reflect a city within a city, a culture within a culture, a way of work that is different from the way the world views our work. So with that in view, we're not only fueled then just, just to, to, be, to be reminded why it is that we work, but we also actually see that our work has eternal significance, that God cares about the way we conduct ourselves in our work, about the way we make decisions in our work. So that's where we're going to take a look at this heavenly vision, this new city in the book of Revelation. Three points for today's sermon. Three points. First, the significance of work that we're going to see from this heavenly vision of the new city, the significance of work. Second, the purification of work. And third, the hope for work. So first, the significance of work. Right, hang with me here. We have a lot of things to cover. We're basically getting a biblical theology of work in 40 minutes. So get ready. Right, significance of work. Notice chapter 21, verse 1. Look at, look at what happens here. 
this new heavens and the new earth. Look at what John says, significance of work. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, notice what's happening here. In the last day, there will be a passing away of the old. Notice that the first earth and the first heaven had passed away. So the heaven that currently is will no longer be the heaven that will be in the future, and the earth that we currently know it to be will no longer be as well. And then what we see is what in verse 1 says, a new heaven and a new earth. But what John makes sure that you do not miss is this, that this new heaven and new earth is not two separate spheres. It's not as if there's a new earth here and a new heaven out there. And then there's earthly inhabitants and then there's heavenly inhabitants. That's not the kind of picture that he's giving here. What he's giving here is rather a unified heavenly earth. How do I know that? Verse 2. I saw the singular holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for husband. And notice what that is. It's not only singular, a new heavenly city, but it is a city. What do we know about cities? Cities is where human culture is thriving, where human communities are really at the center. In other words, a city is something where human culture is, where it is fully developed, you see. And this is actually anticipated in the very beginning. When Adam, had created Adam, uh, when Adam was created by God, Adam and Eve was placed in a garden. So we began in a garden and we ended in a city. But remember, when did God tell Adam to work? If work is inherently cursed, if work is inherently bad, if there's no such thing as work in heaven, then we would have imagined that God would have instituted work after the fall. So after Adam and Eve had fallen, then God says, now you work. Now you will have labor. But when you read the narrative, it's not actually what happens. In Genesis 2, before the fall, before sin entered into the world, God had actually told Adam and Eve, you will work the garden. Adam, you will name the animals. You will develop agriculture, in other words. And what was God doing there? As he was telling Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to have children, to work the garden, to lay dominion over the animals and the livestock, what was God doing? God is saying to Adam, as an image bearer, right? You will bring order out of the animal masses. You will name the animals. You will till the garden. You will develop the garden. You will have families. You will develop culture. In other words, what was embedded in the garden was a seed form of human culture, and God was telling Adam and Eve, go and work in such a way where you will create a new family, a new humanity, where the animals will be subdued under you, you will take care of your stewards of creation, and you will create culture. And what's culture? Culture is simply the way human beings live as we take the raw materials out of God's good creation and develop it into something new. So what's music? Music is taking the raw notes of creation and putting order into it, creating something beautiful out of it. What is art? Art is creating the basic um, elements of the world, the colors, the lines, the shapes, the geometries that you see in the world and making something new out of it. And architecture is a part of that, building development is part of that. And, and what is society? Society is simply human families cooperating together in such a way where we, as one body, work together 
so that human beings would flourish under God. That's the, that's the creational intent of everything. And so what do we see in Revelation? If in the garden, friends, you see that there is an eternal significance in work, of course, in Revelation, what you're going to see is not God saying, you know what, forget all that work plants that I've given to Adam and Eve. Forget all that. But rather God saying, I am still faithful to my original plans with Adam and Eve. I'm going to restore human society in such a way where you're going to see a heavenly city where there will be no corruption, where everybody will care for one another, where there will be no more death or sicknesses, where all kinds of work will still be there, but yet no sin. Absolutely no sin. The very city that was anticipated in the garden, marred by the fall, God is saying, I will restore that. Human beings will be my image bearers. We will bring order out of the masses. We will bring order out of chaos. We will we'll make sure that we, we image God properly in a new heavenly city. And we see this, the significance of work, not just in the fact that there's a city in the last day, but look at verse 24. Look at what it says there about what's going to enter this heavenly city. Verse 24, by its light, this is by the, the glory of God, the glory of the Lamb, the lamp of the Lamb, by its light will the nations walk. So somehow there's nations still in the new city. And look at this, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And so this new city, this new heavens, new earth, this new Jerusalem, it's not God creating new things, you know, you know out, of, out of nothing all over again. He's not, he's not just repeating a new creation. Rather, he's taking what's good, everything that is good here, the glories of the kings, and making sure that everything that is good in this life will actually make it into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's some controversy and debate about what it means there about the kings of the earth. Some commentators say that the kings of the earth, they're referred to political leaders. So somehow all the best Christian political leaders will make it into the new heavens and the new earth. Um, others will say it's simply our worship that will be making it there. But I think the kings of the earth there refers to every Christian. How do I know this? Well, in verse 22, I mean, in chapter 22, Verses 3 and 5, it talks about a servants, the presence of servants worshiping God. But the same servants that are worshiping God will reign with him forever in verse 5 in chapter 22. So the servants of God are reigning with God forever, which I take that to be the kings of chapter 21, verse 24. So every Christian is called a servant king, a servant king who reigns with God forever. So this means, friends... Stick with me. That everything that is good from this earth will be in continuity, will last until the last day. Everything that has been good on this earth, everything that has been developed by humanity, that has been dedicated unto God, will last until the last day. All the good things of earth, all the technology that right now is being used either for good or for bad, will only be used for good. All of the culture that right now is mixed with sin and pollution and goodness will be purified and will last until the heavens and the earth. Everything that is good that God has given to all of humanity today will last until the last day. And so God isn't repeating a new creation, but rather he's taking things from earth and purifying them and making them new. That's what he's doing. 
And it's tempting, it's really tempting to be speculative there and say, well, what does that mean, Gray? Does that mean that there will be Gojek in the new heavens and new earth? That's not what I'm saying, right? We can't speculate about what specific things about human culture will actually end up there. Or, you know, Grab, for some of you who work for Grab, I know there's competition. Grab or we can't speculate about that. But what we do know, what we do know is that the best of human culture, of human civilization, of human ingenuity, of human technology, will actually end up in the last day. You see that? That's why you were created, friends. You see, you're not just created to worship God on Sunday. You're created to worship God from Monday to Saturday. All of your life, most of your lives, is actually in your workplace, not on church. Most of your lives is in the grind of daily work, of making sure that you put food on the table. And notice, if there's a new city, you'll be feasting. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will enjoy the labors of our hands. You'll be dancing. You'll be hugging one another. You have bodies. Why do you think Christ was resurrected? Was that just cool and for show? Like, here I am, I'm resurrected. Like, that has nothing to do with the new heavens and the new earth. What was, why was Christ called the first fruits of all things? The, 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 the guarantee of what's to come. The, the main example of what is waiting for you. Christ is depicting for you a glorious heavenly body that you will participate into, a resurrected body, a glorious body that will be able to work without sin, without taint, without fatigue. And oh, I know you feel that. You feel that. You know, when um, Robin Williams passed away, I remember just not too long ago, right? And you read about what people were saying about him. What were people saying? Could imagine how many more movies he had in him how many more jokes he had in him, how many more people there were for him to, uh, to, to make happy, right? Uh, and it's such a terrible tragedy that someone like him would pass away. And see, finitude, the presence of death reminds us that the glory that we were meant to have isn't yet reachable, right? And not just Robin Williams, some of you know the feeling of, wanting to do something glorious, and you just can't do it. Some of you have visions and passions for there to be no more orphan uncared for in the city, no more refugees uncared for in the city. Some of you know what it's like to have an artistic passion to draw a painting so beautiful, but you just can't do it. Your hands can't seem to follow the vision that is in your mind. Some of you know the pains of wanting to write a book, but you know that you're finite. You need to take care of your family. There's just some limited things of you, that you could do. The glories that are in your mind are tempered by sickness, by death, by finitude, by the corruptions of others, by your own corruption, so that you are not able to bring forth the glory that you know is possible. That's what the new heavens and new earth is promising, friends. Whatever it is you're envisioning right now, God has planted that as a good thing. You were made in the image of God, and you were made as a creative soul, as a creative body. So you can get up in the morning. So you can get up in the morning. And by the way, just as a, and as a side, right, if you don't believe in God in this room today, have the guts to admit that you have no reason to get up in the morning right? 
if we are an atheist in this room, and by the way, I was an atheist for a long time. I remember my mother would come up to me and late at night because I was failing my classes in high school, um, and I, I, I just couldn't, I didn't want to go to school. I was fixated on the rock band that I had. I was playing guitar like all day until late at night. You know, I was doing things the weekend that I wasn't supposed to. And I remember my mother would, would knock into my door and would simply just ask me, why don't you just try to get good grades? Just try. I'm like, why? Why don't you, you know, because you need to get into a good college. Why? Because you want to get a good wife. I could do that through music. <laughs> but, 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 but why? why? Why is that a good thing, mother? So, so you could get a good job. Why is that a good thing? So you can have a good family, raise good children. Why? I just kept asking why and why. And friends, I dare you. Ask why. Keep asking why. And if you don't believe in God, have the guts to acknowledge the way I did was I was an atheist. There's no meaning. And I told her and I confronted her with tears in her eyes and I said to her, Mom, I will die and so will you. All the memories of me will pass away. All of our children will pass away. And even if I became Shakespeare, at most people are, some obscure college students are reading about me in some random town in England. And then I will pass away. All memories of us, everything will simply turn to dust. Why get up in the morning? Does, why does it matter? You see, friends, we have this existential dread. Here's our main and basic fear in life, that what we have been living for has no significance whatsoever. Our main fear is meaninglessness. And that contradicts our main passion for work. You see, why is work so meaningful for you? Work isn't just all drudgery. You know this to be the case. You know the pleasure that you get when you close that deal when you paint that painting, when you write that song, when you write that book, when you give that amazing lecture, you know that there's a certain kind of pleasantness that tells you this is meaningful. This is worth living for. And you know the feeling after a long holiday where you feel, man, I got to get back to work. I feel this sense of lethargicness that tells me I got to get back to work or else I'll just feel dry and lethargic all the time. Work is utterly meaningful. You know why? Because we were made in God's image. And you were made for a new city where everything works together. Now, let me just get really uh, practical here for a moment and just give you two categories of work. We're still under the first point, so hang with me. I got time. Two categories of work here um, that, that, that witnesses to the new city that, that give significance for our work here today, okay? Two categories of work. First is creational work. And second is healing work. What's creational work? Well, we've talked a little bit about it. Creational work is work that will last in the new heavens and the new earth that was already intended in creation itself. Things that, in other words, don't have anything to do with the healing of sin. So what is creational work? Things like making music. Things like technology. Things like simply the management of society, human culture, agriculture, development of food and labor and that kind where we're really developing human communities and human societies to thrive so that our standards of living are higher and so forth. But then there's healing work, which is work that is necessary, but it's necessary because of the entrance into sin, entrance of the fall. And what kind of work is this? It's the existence of orphanages is the existence of hospitals, is the existence of the police force, 
is the existence of, yes, institutional churches, where the healing work is to mitigate the effects of the fall, to reverse the effects of the fall, and to witness to a time to this new city where in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 21, it says that there will be no more tear, no more death. What do hospitals do? We try to prevent the effects of sicknesses and prevent and prolong life. What do orphanages do? We try to prevent tears from flowing down the tears of children. What, 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 do, what do churches do? We tell people about God precisely because we were supposed to know God, but we don't anymore. And Jeremiah 31, 34 talks about a time where no one person will need to tell their neighbor who God is because everyone will know. Everyone will simply know who God is. And later on, you're going to see in chapter 21, verse 22, it says that there's no more temple in the city. No more institutionalized priesthoods. No more uh, uh, need for us to teach one another about God because we all will have unmediated access. We can simply walk with God once again, just as Adam and Eve had did. So it doesn't mean that healing work is less than creational work because healing work is just as necessary. Healing work like orphanages, hospitals, the police force, the church today in terms of its institutions is still pointing to this new city where no more sin will be there, where there will be no more suffering, no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. So friends, let me just emphasize this. I want to get this into your bones. No work is meaningless. All of your work when done unto God for the purpose of the good of humankind is meaningful. Because every time I talk about this, I have the voice of conscience of my friend Zach when I was in Scotland. What happened in Scotland was this. I would talk a lot about a theology of work, a theology of the city, this new heavens, new earth. And he would tell me, my friend Zach, he would, he would, he would push me on this. He's like, great, that's all nice and good. You talk about a the theology of the city, that's all nice and good. You know, you follow this kind of teaching, but you're aiming at white-collar businessmen, those in education, those in arts, you know, the, 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 the big artistic cultural, you know, highs of our cities. Why can't I just be a plumber in Idaho? No offense to those of us in Idaho. Um, that was his example, not mine. Why can't I just be a plumber in Idaho, right? Why can't, why, why can't, I, why can't I just be... Uh, a, a normal common Joe carpenter. By the Jesus was a carpenter. He was pushing on me on these things. And friends, no work is meaningless. Not even the plumber, not even the milkmaid. We know this from two things, all right? Gordon Ramsay and Martin Luther. Gordon Ramsay and Martin Luther. Gordon Ramsay, you watch any of his uh, Kitchen Nightmares episodes, what do you see? In Kitchen Nightmares and Gordon Ramsay, where Gordon Ramsay spends like a week with failing restaurants, and he tries to fix them up so that they will become successful and serve better food and serve the people better and so forth. The first thing that Gordon Ramsay always does, every time he does these things, just watch Kitchen Nightmares. I've, I've had a Kitchen Nightmare binge for a while in the past. Watch Kitchen Nightmares. The first thing he does is what? He inspects the cleanliness of the kitchen. Always the first thing he does. He's like, who's cleaning the kitchen? And then the chef's like, I don't know. Like, what kind of chef are you? Clean the kitchen or people will get sick. And you, you see that if you don't clean your room, just try. Don't clean your room. Don't vacuum. Don't wipe anything. Uh, you're going to die. <laughs> you're you're going to absolutely suffer and die. 
right? That little uh, dust bunny that's swirling there is going to grow. And soon there will be no more room for you to breathe, all right? In other words, all, every kind of work is necessary, and if one person doesn't do their job, nobody else could function. If the chef doesn't make sure that the kitchen is clean, nobody will want to eat his cooking. Doesn't matter how, how many kinds of elaborate sellers, you know, recipes you have or how much kale you put into the salad. You need people to clean. And Martin Luther, in his catechism on the Lord's Prayer, what does he say? Every time you pray, give us our daily bread. What does he say? He says, every time you pray that, you're praying for the milkmaids who are milking the cows. You're praying for the farmers who are feeding the cows. You're praying for the farmers who are making the plants grow. You're, pr you're praying for the transportation system to take the milk to your villages or now, you know, to your supermarkets. You're praying for all of human society to work together so that the city can go, so that you can drink your milk, so that you can write your sermons, so that you can write your books, so that you can have your universities. Every part of human society is meaningful. So the church heals. So friends, if you're a Christian in this room, work excellently. You're needed. Part of your witness unto God is you, your work, you're working excellently witnesses to this, this new city where you can say and show to people, every single one of you are needed to work well or else all, all parts of society can't work together. You need to work together. And the church has to work excellently. That's our, one of our main witnesses to God and to other people about the goodness of God. All right, second, the purification of work. The purification of work. We need to get some principles to get done. How do we do that? How do we make sure that we actually work in such a way that is excellent? What does that look like? And how do we learn that from this passage? Three principles here really quickly, really quickly. First, how do you purify your work? You've got to love people more than things. You gotta love people more than things. So therefore, you use things to serve people rather than use people to get things. Very simple. You gotta love people more than things so that you use things to love people rather than use things, I'm sorry, use people to get things, right? So which means, friends, that the ends of your businesses, the ends of your work, is never just profits. It's never just profits. Profits are necessary, yes, absolutely. Without profits, you can't, you can't get anything off the ground. But you've got to use profits to develop your, your work in such a way where the goods and services are distributed to the people. You know, Simon Sinek, uh, a, a very m good motivational speaker, he's got a book called Start With Why. And he talked there about how profits is like fuel to a car. When you buy a car, uh, you don't get a car to get fuel. Why did you get that Honda Accord? I, I needed the fuel. Like, that's why I got, I got the car. Why did, you, why did you get that, you know, that Jeep? Uh, the fuel is even better. You know, uh, that's not why, you know, you need the fuel, but why do you get the fuel? The fuel gets your car from one place to another. That's why you need it. Profits are necessary, but it's not the end. It's the means. It's an instrument, you see. And Simon Sinek is not a Christian. Deep inside, you know this. You know that this is true. You know, you go to any mission and vision statement of any company, they will never say, our mission is to get ourselves richer. I got kids, and they're going to live better lives than I do, and I don't care about my customers, and everybody's just going to get richer if you work for me. Nobody says that. You realize that? No, Mercedes-Benz. Google this. What is the mission and vision statement of Mercedes-Benz? And you would think to yourself, you know, make people rich because they sell rich cars or something like that, right? That's not... That's not what they say. You know what they say? 
we exist to delight our customers. Our mission statement is encapsulated in the term dedicated to customers driven by excellence. There's almost nothing about cars other than the word driven. <laughs> in other words, why do the Mercedes-Benz exist? They exist to serve the customer, to delight them, to make people happy by cars, which you might think, how? Maybe some people are like, oh, of course, let me. But anyway, you know, but, but the point there, it's not, it's not exactly like what they write, right? The point there is everybody knows that we exist to make other people better, to empower people, to get people jobs, to make sure that people's standards of living are better, to reverse the effects of the fall. We know this to be the case. Non-Christian or Christian, you know this to be true. But if you start maximizing profits and using people on the way, you know deep inside that something's wrong, but yet functionally we do that. We go against our own conscience, all right? I had another example there, but I think we gotta move on. So B, we need an identity. So, so first thing you gotta do is love people, use things to love people rather than the other way around. The second thing you need is an identity that is secure from rejection or failure. An identity that secures you from fear of rejection or failure. Why do people compromise? Why do people compromise in the workplaces and their relationships? It's because they're afraid. They're afraid that they might lose their jobs and then what will happen to them afterwards. They're afraid that they, something might happen to them relationally. They're afraid of the social consequences. They're afraid. They ask things like, what will people think? But you see, friends, you need an identity that tells you that you are eternal. And in verse 24, it says that you are a king of the earth. Not only that, in verse 27, it says that you are written in the Lamb's book of life. You're written in, in the Lamb's book of life. That's the kind of identity that you need. You see, the only way you can live secure lives where you can stand up for what's true, where you can stand up for what's true, where you could, when, it comes, when push comes to shove, become a whistleblower, when you could, you, when you have to do the right thing, even when people expect you not to. You need, a, you need metal in your spine. And the only kind of metal in your spine that says that I could do the right thing is to say, God approves of me, well, whose approval do I need? And by the way, that's incredibly difficult. I'm not just saying that as if it's a trite thing to say, right? Church, there are some of us in this room that will have to make difficult decisions in their lives that will risk them their jobs. Are you gonna be there for them? Are you gonna be the kind of city that will lift these people up when they have to make that tough decision? Are you gonna be the kind of city within a city that says, because you did the right thing, I'm gonna reward that instead of rewarding you when you do the corrupt thing? Will you be the kind of city that rewards integrity and makes sure that punishment will go to the unjust? You need an identity that is so secure that you could do what is right. Third, and finally, you need a hope. You need a hope for work. You need a hope that says that what you're doing now is not in vain. That all the small things that you do for integrity's sake, all the things that go unnoticed will be rewarded. You need a hope that says your work will endure. And here's, here's three things from this text that tell you about your hope for work. First of all, notice again in verse 2. Where does this new city come from? It says in verse two that it's coming down from heaven. 
It's coming down from heaven. That's a feature of the hope that you have. You see, friends, if it's coming down from heaven, even though God is allowing and using human cultural endeavors for him, and that will continue in the new heavens and the earth, the final coming of the city doesn't depend on you. It's wholly on God. God is doing it. So the new city isn't, you know, um, progressively being uh, um, um, actualized by our works, our, our labor. It's not as if we are bringing the heavenly kingdom down on earth. We're not doing that. God is. That means, friends, even when you fail, you have hope because then you don't have to, you know, flagellate yourself and say, man, if I don't do this, the world's going to go to doom. If I don't do this, God isn't able to do his work. Rather, you know that even in your faithfulness, in the midst of your failures, it depends all on God, and God will make that and turn that for good. The city is coming down. So you don't need to be paralyzed by fear if you're facing tough decisions, if you're facing some kind of failure. But rather, you know that there's a hope. God is going to bring the city down. It is all depending on God. Look to God who will bring this new city down on earth. Second, look at verse 22 again. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So notice there that there will be no more need of a temple in the city precisely because, verse 23 tells us, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. So there will be no more need for a temple because God's presence is unmediated. God's presence is always there, and every nation will simply see it and will walk by its light. And so there will be no more gap between what you feel on Sunday and what you feel on Monday. You know, one of the most um, encouraging and gratifying things that workers in the church could hear is people telling us, I'm so thankful that this church exists, that this community exists, because here I find rest. Well, rest from what? From the wilderness, from work. From the backbiting, the gossip, the slander, the compromises, the corruption, the suffering that I see in my daily walks, I can come back on Sunday and I can be remembered that here I can rest. Here I can rest. Well, friends, don't you, don't you want that? Don't you want a time where you will no longer feel that gap between what you feel on Sunday and what you feel on Monday? Don't you want, don't we want the kind of hopefulness, the kind of rest, the kind of security, the kind of integrity of mind that allows us to come outside every single day and say, I'm resting even while I'm working. I know God is here even while I'm working. I have no distinction in my brain anymore between what I feel on Sunday and what I feel on Monday. That's exactly what you get. That's the hope. You see glimmers of that here now. That will be your everlasting life. But finally, friends, your final hope is this. In verse 22 and 23 and 24, all the way to verse 27, it talks about the glory of God, the light of the Lamb. You see, friends, all the way throughout the book of Revelation, every time it talks about the church, it never talks about blemishes. Every time it talks about the church, we are unblemished brides, pure white as snow. We are completely free from any kind of stain. No more death or suffering, no more tear wiped away. But here in the middle, you don't, you're not just, in other words, in the new heavens, new earth, you're not just enlightened 
by the glory of God simpliciter, so to say. Not just the glory of God in itself, but rather the glory of God as depicted fundamentally and foundationally in the lamb that was slain. And in Revelation chapter 5, what do we know about this lamb? This lamb was exalted in the middle of the city and all the angels were always singing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb, worthy is he, the one who was slain. And when Jesus was resurrected, remember when he showed up to the disciples? Look at my scars. I bear on the body the marks of sin. Look at me. And why did he have these scars, friends? Because Jesus was the true gardener. He was the true Adam. He was the greater and better Adam. He was the true and greater worker. He was the one who worked and subdued the dominions of the earth. He was the one, though he was slandered, he was tempted by the serpent, he did not revile back. He did not give in to temptation. He stuck to the word of God. He was the one when Satan tempted him and asked him, are you truly the son of God? He had an identity that was secure. Secure enough that preserved him from failure to say, I'm the son of God. I don't need to listen to the temptations of man. He was the one when everything was compromising him, when everything was telling him to compromise, he was the one where everyone was mocking him, get yourself off of the cross. He remained obedient. He was the one who was quietly and faithfully working as a carpenter and quietly and faithfully working even when everyone else told him, be corrupt, compromise a little bit. And that's why he has these scars, friends, because, friends, it doesn't depend on you. When you're struggling in your work, don't say to yourself, I just gotta, I just gotta, gotta try harder. Look to Jesus. If you see him having full integrity for you, if you see him having full integrity in the midst of losses, in the midst of losing his friends, his disciples, and more than that, he was the only one who lost the Father's love for you. You can work in integrity. You can do what needs to be done. You can hope in him. Because friends, in the new heavens and the new earth, what will fuel that work? The glory of the Lamb. This is the privilege and the responsibility that we have, O oh church. Let us hold fast to this vision. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us to be priests, a holy nation, a city within a city that you've called us for meaningful work, not just drudgery, not just fallen work, but rather work that you've guaranteed to us will last into the future. Help us, Lord God, see this vision. Help us implement this in our lives. Help us be you know, enraptured by it so that we can work for your holy kingdom here on earth, witnessing to that future work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.